I've been using the Hammerhead Karoo 2 for the past number of weeks. I've used every bike computer on the market through the years. And anybody who listens to the podcast on the regular, you will know that I'm not exactly at peak fitness at the moment. Every other device I've used, they track what you'd expect them to track. They track heart rate, power, distance, speed. But the Hammerhead Karoo 2, it saved my bacon more times than I can count since I've gotten it. It has this really cool notification that detects climbs which are upcoming and tells you how many meters you have left to hang on, to endure, to suffer to the top of that climb. This has allowed me to hang on to groups when normally I would have been dropped and dropped the parachute out the back. Plus, I've plotted some new routes on all training roads with their points of interest feature. The jump from other bike computers to using the Karoo 2, it's been like going from my old Nokia 3310 phone to putting my hands on the iPhone for the first time. It's full colour and the touchscreen is very responsive. It's much more like using a smartphone than a GPS device. And you know it's a bike computer worth using when the likes of Justin Williams from Legion and Froomey have it strapped to their handlebars. For a limited time only, our listeners can get a free heart rate monitor with the purchase of a Hammerhead Karoo 2. Visit hammerhead.io right now and use the promo code ROADMAN at checkout to get yours today. I'm going to leave all the details for this offer in today's show notes. It's episode 496 of the Roadman Cycling Podcast, and today I'm chatting with Laura King. Let's cue that intro! Big question is this, how do we use cycling as a tool to improve our health, our happiness, and our longevity? That is the question, and this podcast will give you the answers. My name is Anthony Walsh, and welcome to the Roadman Podcast. Roadman, welcome back to episode number 496. It's a beautiful day. I hope you enjoyed yesterday's podcast, just trying something a little bit different. Always just playing around to see, you know, we started out with only interview episodes if any of the OGs are listening from way back when. Then I started introducing little solo casts, went to twice a week on the interviews. That seemed to work well. You responded well to the Sarah Friday episode. So the latest iteration is this Tour de France show with Joe Laverick. Uh, Joe is not going to be on every single week. It's one of these things we're trying maybe for some grand tours, maybe for some of the classics. We're going to see what the feedback is like. But personally, I loved recording the episode with Joe yesterday. And that's always a really good indication that listeners are going to enjoy it. Now, today's episode, it's a cracker. It's Laura King. She is a former professional cyclist, the co-founder of one of the biggest events in gravel cycling, Rooted Vermont. She's the husband of former world tour rider Ted King, who I've previously had on the podcast, but she's an amazing advocate for inclusion in cycling, diversity in cycling, and trying to almost brainstorm and evangelize women in cycling. And it's a brilliant interview. I learned so much about gravel for my upcoming gravel debut on the Rift, which is less than two weeks away. So I learned so much about that and just a fascinating insight into what it's like to have a life built around cycling. With all that being said, let me welcome to the Roadman Cycling Podcast, the amazing Laura King. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Laura, we just had a bit of a tech nightmare. We did. <laughs> it's, it's kind of one of those days. <laughs> Start. So, so Laura's had very little sleep, and the last thing she needed was a tech mess up. But that's what she got. 
Got to just roll with the punches. <laughs> uh, Laura, so to recap, the, we'll call it the lost interview, the one that never happens. Uh, you've recently just had your second child and you're encountering some very sleepless nights. So I'm interested to know, how are you going to balance training? And actually, a, a big one that I know I even struggle to balance around my lifestyle and I don't have kids is meal preparation. How are you balancing these two things around now a second screaming baby? Ooh, well, great question. I'm not sure I would use the word balance um, with what I have happening right now. It's sort of uh, just taking it day by day and figuring out what might be feasible or possible. Um, in terms of riding, I have been back on the bike already, and you know, even despite sleep deprivation or being fatigued, I find that cycling is it's, it's energy giving and energy taking, but the energy, the amount of energy I gain from it and the refreshment I feel from it, um, supersedes anything the the amount of energy it takes away. So it's still, you know, even if I'm feeling tired right now, it's not about fitness. It's a lot about just getting outside, getting fresh air, um, often meeting up with a friend and just getting a moment for myself that does so much for my mental state. Um, and that's really crucial, right? You know, in the first two weeks, it's just an intense time and, um, your emotions are not extremely steady, especially when you're tired. And, um, it's something that really steadies, steadies my, my mental state. So both Ted and I see it as pretty crucial for still making time. It's a huge priority of our day. In fact, He's out right now. Um, we have most of the day is supposed to rain today, and we have a little dry window. And he is on our uh, Hazel duty, watching our daughter Hazel, who's two. And so to get his ride in today, he's out with her on the bike. You know, we have this. Um, it's called a Mac ride, and it has a seat in on the top that sit on that sits on his top tube, and she holds on to his handlebars, and. So while it's, you know, it's a little bit different experience than going out and doing intervals, he's able to still get a spin in and, um, and. So it's very much just an endurance ride, I'm guessing. He's not exactly going out with, you know, 10 kilo efforts to do. <laughs> exactly. But it's something and it's, um, you know, just like, that's kind of the name of the game right now is like making it work, whether it's, you got to do it with, with your child or we're on the trainer and the baby sleeping or, you know, whatever, whatever we can do to kind of like fit it in. Um, in terms of meal planning, uh, not really, don't really have that dialed in yet either. We've been fortunate to have in these two weeks, a lot of friends, uh, bring us meals, which is just huge. I mean, my mom is here and it's amazing how even with three adults, uh, helping out just how much work everything is. And so just, um, yeah, the, having a, having a meal brought to our house has helped with just one last thing we have to do. It really puts into context, uh, how lucky people are with their time when they don't have children. Like I'm looking at my schedule today and I've a couple of podcasts to record today and I'm looking at a four hour window and kind of going, okay, I need to get out there. Like it's not a time pressured window at all, four hours to go and get a ride done, but I'm still kind of dragging my heels and going, Oh, is it a bit tight? Should I move my recovery day to today? And try and ride tomorrow when I don't have two interviews. And it's like the old saying, like, if you want something to do and ask a busy man, 
when I used to race uh, full time and over in France on a rest day, and literally my only thing I would have to do was like my groceries for the entire day. And the store would close at like eight PM, and it'd be like ten to seven, and I'd be like, I need to get to that store. I need to get to that store, and it still wouldn't happen. Yeah, it's it's a new puzzle, especially um, I'm breastfeeding full time, and so that adds another element of just figuring out the math of like, okay, do have I left enough milk for the baby to be fed while I'm gone? And, uh, you know, just another, another little bit of calculation that has to be done. So. But like parenthood is so different for guys and girls. I know like, obviously you're in it, you're a team and you're both together in it, but you've given up your body for nine months. And then the recovery period after that, like I Dirk Friel on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, the co-founder of training peaks and, you know, he's geeking out and talking about metrics, CTL, ATL, TSB. Like that's all gone out the window. Like you can't maintain any like data metrics around your fitness when you're trying to navigate pregnancy. No, that's probably, I mean, that's one of the biggest challenges. I won't lie. Um, especially for me, I'm used to, as my mom kind of said to me, you're used to having like control of your body and telling it what to do. And for many months, more than nine, you're, you're kind of at the mercy of what it will allow you to do. Um, my best kind of like way to cope with that has been to kind of see what's possible. And I think I've been surprised at what the, what my body was capable of during pregnancy. For example, like I competed in a hundred mile gravel race at 27 weeks. Did I know if that was a, something that was possible. No. Um, and, and that kind of like accomplishment was my replacement for, you know, the endorphin rush that I was used to getting. It's not the same. It wasn't, um, I think a lot of people would comment and think that I really enjoyed my pregnancy because I was able to ride so much. And I wouldn't say that was the case. Uh, I found pregnancy to be pretty challenging and just mentally and the, the lack of kind of, you know, feeling like you have your, you, you don't feel like you're in your normal body, but it was, I did find ways to kind of like cope and to help me at least feel as though I had some semblance of my normal self through kind of new, new challenges, I guess. And are you going full in that gravel race at 27 weeks or is there a sense of obviously your performance is going to be compromised because you're carrying an extra person but are you still going full to what you're able to do on that day or are you holding back and kind of going okay i don't want to really ride above threshold today um a little bit of both i think one kind of misconception about pregnancy um is that you can't go hard and you absolutely still can you haven't you you have your body kind of regulates how hard you can go. So it's, you know, it's different than when you're not pregnant. However, one thing I was extremely cautious, I mean, the biggest kind of, the biggest risk you're taking is, is fall risk. And that would be the, that would be kind of, you know, totally detrimental. So I, especially when I was riding amongst groups and Pelotons, um, I was just really conscientious about, kind of creating space around me. And, um, yeah, if I needed to slow down to just make sure I wasn't kind of in the line of like, uh, if somebody were to crash in front of me, I, I, I wouldn't take that, that risk. I would slow down. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure ahead. if you've seen uh, I think it was Taurus Swiss last week. Did you see the, 
Lotto Ryder getting boxed in by the three quick step guys. Uh, yes. Was was Ted sort of building like a buffer zone around you on group rides where he's like getting guys to box you on all sides? Well, I was I was really picky. Um, let's see, around thirty weeks, which is you know only ten weeks left to go during pregnancy, we were. Um, we spend a lot of time in Northern California in the Healdsburg wine country area and we lead part of what we do there is building community and leading rides. And so we had about 15 rides that we led throughout the span of three weeks. And that was kind of my, that was the most nerve wracking part of my cycling experience through pregnancy because, you know, you're riding with people that you don't know for the most part and you don't know kind of whose wheels you can trust. And so, yeah, most of the time I was, if I wasn't on Ted's wheel, I was giving a lot of space, um, just trying to be as cautious as possible. And I'm fortunate that everything I, w- I was safe and made it through all of those rides. And, um, yeah, it's just, that's sort of like the, there is risk in everything you do. And I had to kind of each day weigh that risk and, and check my gut with what I felt comfortable with. And, um, you know, I, I feel very, um, like my technical skills on a bike are my strong suit. Um, so I, I felt like I was comfortable kind of with the amount of riding and the riding that I had. And there's a vastly different, uh, safety sort of assessment needs to go into if you're riding with Ted, who's ex world tour. And I'm assuming like any world tour rider, Ted has very few, you know, pilot error crashes out training on his own. They're just quite rare. Whereas somebody who's kind of getting into group riding and they're still figuring out the dynamics of like, how do you balance? What happens if you have to swerve? It, it can be a lot, lot more risky. So for somebody from the outside looking at it and saying, oh, it, it's quite dangerous, maybe cycling during pregnancy. It's very different if you're a newbie cyclist trying to cycle through pregnancy and trying to figure out what is quite a complicated sport versus somebody who is very, very experienced, ex-professional, you know, riding at the top of the female circuit. And, you know, we'll get into some of the work you guys are doing and spearheading the gravel movements and a husband who is ex-world tour. It's kind of a different safety assessment going on. Absolutely. You know, I had this conversation with my doctors quite often because they, they just kind of issue a blanket statement of, you know, we don't feel like cycling is a safe activity during pregnancy. And, I would kind of push them to have a deeper conversation about it to say, well, Hey, it's more, you know, there's, there's more that goes into that decision than just it's safe or it's not safe. It's yeah. What is your skill level? What kind of roads are you riding on? What kind of bike are you riding? Um, what is your you know background? So, um, with all those things in mind, I did my best to mitigate risk and I felt really confident about, um, who I was riding with for the most part and what my skill level and, and aptitude was yeah like downhill mountain biking just isn't the same as a cruise right. cafe right no and i wasn't going out snowboarding right because my level of skill in that activity is is low um, i wouldn't have that same confidence so you, i think it's really individual you and me both it'd be a tragic train wreck if i was on a snowboard uh, and <laughs> I, tu- I, I touched on the gravel uh, movement there and you and ted are obviously at the forefront of spearheading both male and female uh, participation in gravel why do you think we've seen this crazy boom in gravel over the last i suppose it's nearly five years now this boom has been going on you know um I think back to 
my own experience dipping my toes into road racing. I formerly had a triathlon background um, and then tried out road racing and really it left a bad taste in my mouth. I just didn't find it uh, warm and inviting and friendly and include. Uh, I didn't find it to be very inclusive. I didn't find the um, areas in which the racing took place to be very awe-inspiring. They were kind of, I was in California at the time, they were in kind of the middle of California and areas that were not very picturesque or beautiful or that I would really want to ride my bike. Um, the distances for me were uh, I on the shorter side, and it was right around that time that I also was introduced to the Grasshopper Adventure Series. Gravel had yet to become a thing. This was a couple years where before gravel really exploded, but the Grasshopper Adventure Series have been happening for over 20 years in Northern California. And they, Miguel Crawford, who's the race director, um, he was kind of, you know, ahead of his time in terms of um, what, what was soon to come for gravel. So his races are multi-terrain, some are gravel, some are mountain bike, um, some are road, but they're um, the, you know, they're, mass start events they're low-key they're um very grassroots you in the beginning before um you could upload the route on your gps it was just a cue card no course markings and it had exactly the vibe of gravel that was soon to come and it was my first experience was like why isn't road racing like this um they were long and hard events but they were you were out there with all your friends and that just that was really appealing to me. I had a lot of fun and got to go really hard, but at the end of the day, I enjoyed racing with the men and the women and the dynamic of like, you know, after the race, getting to um, be with all of your friends and, and celebrate. And I always think uh, gravel is the closest to it. Do you remember when you got a bike as a child and your parents would say to you, okay, you're not allowed beyond the end of the street. And then you'd kind of go sneak beyond the end of the street and you had this kind of fresh youthful feeling of exploration every time i come in from a gravel ride i feel like that when i ride the road you know maybe it's just a little bit of fatigue from riding the road for so many years but when i ride gravel i could ride for seven hours and i come in feeling energized absolutely i think that's a huge part of the appeal i think just the number of distracted drivers has become a, a an element of you know driving people off the road and onto the quieter dirt roads and just, yeah, a sense of adventure. Um, it's gravel has taken us to places in the country and outside of the country that we would never otherwise visit Emporia, Kansas, uh, Bentonville, Arkansas, you know, just areas that, uh, Stillwater, Oklahoma. These are not areas I would <laughs> probably go. Not on a tourist map. Heiko, Texas. I mean, it's it's a fun way to see the country and to experience just um, something totally different. And it's like everything that is uh, that I don't like about road racing. It seems like we haven't carried that across to gravel. Like gravel is inclusive in the way that road racing is exclusionary. Like you need to look a certain way. You need to be a certain weight. You need to have certain equipment. And then you need to know all these hidden rules about like your helmet matching your sock collar and your bar tape matching your saddle. And it's like, it's just there's such a snobbery built up around it. But then you move across the gravel and it's like, this dude's wearing board shorts and one of his wheels is a different size to the other wheel and no one cares. Right. Um, I think that's what we've kind of 
called the spirit of gravel that we hope um, is going to is going to stay and not change. I mean, it's interesting to see, you know, the, with the explosion of gravel and the competition level rising each year and the ability to have a job within this category of the sport. Um, it will be interesting to see if we can kind of maintain that same spirit. Um, I know Ted and I work really hard. That's kind of something that we care a lot about is, is yeah, is that vibe kind of continuing to be something that draws people to, to gravel. Uh, we spoke briefly in the the hidden podcast that no one will ever hear that we lost the start about you guys getting a van, converting that and exploring the whole country. But what the follow-up question, which I never got to ask in the hidden podcast, which I will ask now, uh, it seems like yourself and Ted have really consciously built a life that's purposeful and that you're in control of the direction you're going and you're sprinkling in these adventures like the the quote, life is a daring adventure or nothing at all. You guys are really living this. And when I look at it and how you're engineering it, what seems quite central to it is the building and expansion of both your personal brands. How much time are you devoting to your personal brand and, you know, doing podcasts like this and keeping yourselves relevant? I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that that's a totally conscientious, like strategic thing that we're trying to do. I think what is really kind of genuine about what we're doing is that neither of us want a boring life <laughs> and uh, we're constant and we both really enjoy just having a full plate and, um, I've never met somebody like Ted who has the capacity for doing as much as he is able to do. Um, he accomplishes a lot in a, in a day and that's kind of, I think together we, we both kind of carry that mentality forward and just always wanting to push, push a little harder in terms of like, uh, our accomplishments or what's driving us, um, and keeping things exciting, whether that's like buying a van and, traveling around the country as a family or whether it's starting our own event or um, whatever it is. I think we're just trying to keep things interesting. Because we're seeing a lot of these kind of gravel, I call them gravel privateers for want of a better term, as opposed to the trade teams we see on the road. Like, do you see this as something that's sustainable? Are these gravel privateers, uh, like I look at Lawrence Tendam, Pete Stettner, Ted, like, is this a, st a sustainable career for people that they can go into? Like, if there's a kid listening to this now and he's maybe a little bit fatigued with the Conti scene and thinking, oh, I don't know if I can step up to World Tour. Do you think this is a viable route for people to go? Yeah, great question. I mean, five years ago, I don't think, I mean, Ted's sort of his entry into gravel was almost accidental and um, right time, right place. So um, it'll just, no one really knows, I guess, what the future holds. And I think for the people out there who are not just racers, but um, have a lot to offer sponsors in terms of just, you know, personality and content creation, I feel like there will, there will be a place for those people. Um, but the stakes are definitely... And the, the expectations are definitely, on a, from a sponsor standpoint, are getting higher and higher. It's, it's not just about your race results. It's about a lot more that you can offer a sponsor. And that, I think, is going to be what um, 
that's going to be something that is, uh, I guess, the minimum that has to be done to to make it work. Because I've had quite a few kids reaching out that are like on the cusp of walking away from the sport and they're thinking about moving into gravel. And they're saying they've been approaching a bunch of sponsors and the sponsors are really coming back and just offering them free products. And they're saying to me like, okay, well, how do I make that step from getting free? Like, it's difficult to call the electric company and say, hey, will you take a box of power bar gels instead of payment? How can they make that transition from getting the free gels to sponsors starting to write cash checks for them in the sport? Is it results? Is it personal brand or as you say, content creation or just a mixture of everything? I think it's a mixture of everything and having um, something, having an important like message to share, you know, whether I just think about the characters out there, like um, we hosted a 150 person women's um, gravel cycling skills clinic this weekend. And uh, Meg Fisher is one of the, she's a para athlete. She's one of the athletes there speaking and is making her career within gravel. And, you know, it's, it's people like her who it's, yes, she's, she's winning races and competing at a high level, um, amongst her competitors, but she also has a message to share of positivity and, um, how she's kind of like, you know, pushed through hardship and just, she's more dynamic than just someone who is, who races a bike. And I think that that's, that's going to important part of uh, being attractive to a sponsor. You mentioned the girls camp. Uh, it's amazing to get such a number of girls together on a camp like that. How important is that to you trying to promote female participation in sport? It's, it's huge. Um, so rooted Vermont this year in 2022 will be, uh, we've reached gender parity. So we have 50% female participation. That's amazing. I believe we're, one of the first in the country to I, have, I would that. say first in the world. I've never heard of it. <laughs> um, it's extreme. It's extremely exciting. Um, both Ted's and my business partner, Kristen, we work closely together and it's just been a, you know, something that's been really important to us to see more women on the start line. But what we really identified was it's more that you have to do the work. You can't just, op- you know, hold, hold open the spots for women. It's, we felt as though we needed to take a step back and say, okay, how can we, how can we do the work to really increase female participation? And we don't really care if those women sign up for our event or whether they're ready to sign up for our event, but we want to have a place where they can feel um, that they're welcome and that they're, that is, you know, not it not intimidating and that they can learn the skills whether it's the emotional skills the mental skills or the physical skills that they need to make their way into into the sport of cycling in general whether they choose gravel or not and that i think we underestimated the power of not just of the community that that's created and you know, these women now, this is our, this was our third year. We had 255 applications and we were a lot, we were able to have a host 150 people. But one of the qualifications for um, entry into the clinic was what are you going to do in your own community? And we had 50% um, of the women were from the state of Vermont and 50% were from all over the country. And it was really important to understand how are you going to carry this forward so that 
the effect of this clinic is so much bigger than just this three-day weekend. And, you know, now we have women who are starting, we have a woman who started the Houston Gravel Collective, and now she's expanding these gravel collectives outside of just her home. That's a great idea. Yes, like because I, my girlfriend, we have a Friday podcast, which actually baffles me all the time because we've had huge guests on the podcast and we're on episode 480 now. And myself and my girlfriend have a Friday episode every Friday and consistently every week. That's our most downloaded episode, like tens of thousands of people every tune in every Friday to this wow. band. And it's like stupid questions because she's only gotten into cycling in the last six months. So she's asking all the questions that probably I was asking, you know, a decade ago, but I've completely forgotten about like last week's episode. I was like, why can't I turn my bike upside down if I'm fixing a puncture? And it's like, you just can't, you just can't. But we were working really hard on trying to identify like, what are the barriers? We have a weekly group ride. And again, like every group rides in this area anyway, it's totally male dominated. And we're like, well, what is the barriers here? And how can we erode these barriers? And some of them, I think, are they're baked into the industry. Uh, like we have the cycling kit is skin tight. It's not flattering on anyone. And then when you add in females have a higher percentage of body confidence issues than typically males do. That's definitely one barrier. It's a massively male-dominated environment, so you've got to be a confident girl to go into that environment. How purposeful are you in trying to identify those and find solutions for them, or are you just like purely trying to advocate, get as many women in as you can, and then fix it when you have them all together? Uh, I would say we're extremely purposeful. Um, and yeah, I would agree through our application process, the majority of women have, when we, when we ask about what their cycling community looks like at before attending, it's my husband has gotten me into cycling, my boyfriend, my brother. Um, but there's such a desire for these women. They want to find female community and they, they, I think there's a lot of power in learning from other women. So we have female pro mechanics, we have female, you know, mentors, um, and the power in being able to watch another woman try a skill and seeing that she can do it is, uh, it's just, it, it makes a huge difference in. We had a empowering. tragic, uh, we had a tragic incident here last year in Ireland and there was a girl in her late twenties who was a teacher and she was out jogging on a canal on her own, like quite a, you know, a densely populated canal that people would frequent and jog. And she was abducted and she was killed on the canal. And this really brought to the national consciousness this debate. And I have to say, I was totally ignorant to it until this happened. And then sitting and chatting with my girlfriend. And it was like this whole system of defenses that girls have that guys don't have. Like my girlfriend saying, if you're uh, jogging and you're on a sidewalk and somebody's walking towards you, you will just cross the road to make sure you don't have to jog past them, especially if it's late in the evening. If you hear somebody coming from behind you, you'll cross the road. And it's all these things you're totally oblivious to as a guy. And when I started thinking about this and adding it into all the other problems we've talked about on low female participation, it just made me see how much work we have to do as a whole community to get towards that parity that you're talking about. Yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. But I think, um, I don't know. I, I always say that there's something special in the water here in Vermont. Um, 
we it's, have it's maple syrup, I think. Yeah, exactly. That's what it is. Well, uh, before moving here, my biggest fear was I was leaving, you know, the San Francisco Bay Area, an area where I thought it's densely populated with cyclists. I had a great community and I imagined moving to Vermont and in my head, it was just full of old people and there was going to be very little <laughs> community. Um, and it's quite the opposite. We hosted a three-part ride series on a Friday afternoon and had over 100 women um, registered to show up each week. And I'd, so I don't know if it's just, I think the culture of this state is helpful and that everybody um, values you know, being outdoors and being um, active. But we just have an incredible kind of growing female cycling community. And um, not only that, but there's this attitude in our community of we're all kind of on, um, on the same mission. Like there are so many leaders and um, people quietly doing the work outside of just, you know, what Rooted Vermont is doing to, to really invest and grow um, women's cycling. And so I, I think that that is a little part of the, the magic to kind of, uh, you know, inviting others to come see what's happening here and hopefully kind of carry that forward to their back to their communities. A move into the countryside is one I'm contemplating myself at the moment. <laughs> it's because I'm big city. I'm in uh, Dublin city. It's the capital of Ireland. And again, densely populated millions of people here. And so I'm thinking of actually moving down the country. Uh, how is that experience? It's definitely daunting when I think about it. Cause it's like immediately you, you think, social isolation, lack of training partners. I'm never going to see anyone again. And I'm going to be playing, you know, bingo in the local community. Hall. Exactly. <laughs> oh, those were all my fears. Um, <laughs> but they just couldn't have been, I mean, thankfully for whatever reason, um, Vermont, I don't know. It's, it's both, it's very conducive to cycling. Um, we have more dirt roads than paved. And I think, um, it's attractive, especially with the growth of gravel to being a destination. But, um, yeah, I, I never imagined living kind of in a roar, more rural area. We live on a property with 10 acres and, nice. um, you can host yeah. a cyclocross race if you're stuck. Uh, we, we've thought about it. <laughs> we create a fat bike course in the winter. Uh, that's about two miles long throughout our whole backyard. And, um, it's fun. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, I enjoy it more than I ever expected. And you couldn't be any more of a cliche because your nutrition company on top is literally a maple syrup based nutrition company. <laughs> That's right. Well, the maple syrup comes from Vermont and that was kind of what precipitated our, our move back to the Northeast. So how involved in the nutrition company are you? Um, I am not very involved. What's funny is that my uh, work background is in sports nutrition. I worked for Power Bar. I worked for Goo Energy. Um, and when I met Ted, I was working for Goo, a competitor. Um, and so we had some interesting conversations as he's trying to promote his product. And here I am working for the com the competition. I actually used um, to ride for a team sponsored by, by Goo. Uh, Estella's Oncology, US team. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's good stuff, but I still get like PTSD if I see a goo gel. Yeah. <laughs> well, I certainly uh, have been brought to the other side of, you know, valuing a product that is very natural and, hey, it comes from a tree and is easily digested. And um, Ted is 
quite the maple syrup proselytizer, so he could go on and on about the merits of maple syrup. But uh, it, it is funny to have had that background. That said, um, I spent so much time in sports nutrition that um, I don't have an active daily role in the company, but every once in a while I like to, I'm, I have thoughts and opinions of what the next product should be. And we talk a lot, we talk a lot about it, but he um, has three other business partners. So, and a pretty good team uh, um, here in Vermont. One that's, you guys just balance so much. It's unbelievable. Like it's stress. Like I'm stressed even asking the questions about how busy you guys are. Never mind the babies. Like you've the event as well, Rooted Vermont, which I really, so next year, I think I'm going to ride hopefully close enough to a full gravel calendar. So I definitely have to try and get out and do this one. But uh, Rooted Vermont has become a huge event on the gravel calendar as well. That must be insanely stressful each year. <laughs> uh, this is, yeah, it was an intense time to have a baby because this is the most intense time of at least, I do the day-to-day work of putting on Rooted Vermont alongside Kristen um, and Ted is a little bit more just the face and has a lot of other jobs going on. Um, but yeah, this is a very intense time with like five weeks to go and the women's clinic that we just put on. Um, so I won't say that it hasn't been a little bit, uh, I guess in, yeah, intense is the best word. Um, thankfully we have a great team. We have a lot of people helping us out. Um, but it's been exciting to see, you know, I think we've, with Rooted Vermont, we've been really intentional just about being our authentic self and really kind of having our core values and not wanting to grow the event just to, for the sake of having, you know, this, this huge gathering, but really doing things the right way that we feel is are the right way. And, um, you know, we'll cap our, our participation around a thousand. We feel like we really can kind of maintain the vibe of the event that we, that is important to us. And that's very like, you know, close knit family oriented. When you come to the event, you are not just a number. You will you will feel like you are a part of family and we want everyone to have kind of just this, this really special experience when they come. So and like how amazing for the local community, because there's not a thousand people coming. Everybody's coming with partners, friends, kids. Like it's got to be huge buzz around the area for it. Big time. Yeah. We have over 46 States and I think seven countries, um, coming to our little town of 4,000 people in Richmond, Vermont. Uh, Laura, I just want to finish up with a couple of quick fire questions. I've started doing this in the last few weeks and it's, uh, it's getting quite popular. I know you're a little bit of a bookworm. So I'm going to start out. What's your favorite book? Ooh, favorite book. Um, now I'm going to forget uh, Phil Knight, the founder of Nike. Shoe Dog. I forget the title. Yeah, Shoe Dog. Love yeah, good, that one. Good book, good book. Pre race <laughs> meal. Uh, oatmeal with all the toppings. Your favorite song? Ooh. Um, I don't know my favorite song. Now that I'm a parent, I feel like all I have is kids' songs going in my head at all times. <laughs> no more and gangster rap. Specifically, <laughs> Wheels on the Bus. <laughs> shocking, shocking. Uh, your favorite bike? My Cannondale Super 6 Evo. Um, it's a road bike, but it fits pretty wide tires, and it's just fast and 
Shout out to the sponsors. <laughs> <laughs> uh, your favorite bike race? Ooh. Uh, you know, I'll go with a new bike race that I competed in last summer called The Last Best Ride, put on by my very dear friend, Jess Sarah, in Whitefish, Montana. And it's it's on the smaller side, um, but it's sim- it has a lot of similarities to Rooted, and Montana is a really cool place. Amazing. Laura King, it's been brilliant. I've loved chatting with you. Thank you very much for eating into the limited reserves of energy you have to talk to <laughs> you today. Well, thanks so much for having me. It was a pleasure talking. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode. This podcast really wouldn't be possible without our amazing listeners who have contributed to the running of this podcast since its inception over on Patreon. So thank you for everybody that has subscribed over there. You make this podcast possible. If you haven't subscribed yet, it takes about 60 seconds and it really keeps this show on the road. So you can head on over to patreon.com forward slash Anthony underscore Walsh. Buy me the price of a pint of beer once per month. It's not a lot to ask if you're getting value from the show. This works out at less than 25 cents per episode. So go to patreon.com forward slash Anthony underscore Walsh. And as always, on anything I mention on the show, the link is in the show notes.